It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Uh, well, <clears throat> uh, we're in a series talking through idolatry, and of course this is a fun week, uh, seeing that uh, we're in between semesters. Ha ha ha! So this is, uh, this is good for the few of us who are in the room. Uh, but next week, <clears throat> we'll uh, get back into our week-long uh, and have a whole bunch of people here, which so is going to be fun. Um, but what I thought I'd do in this particular session is kind of do a reprise uh, and almost a review of the last session and then kind of take it a step further and talk about one more concept. <clears throat> in the last session, uh, I was using a book uh, called uh, Sipping Salt Water. Uh, and it's, a, it's a book by Steve Hope. <clears throat> and use an illustration that he uses in that book to talk about this idea of idolatry. And I really appreciated his language and his thought process in, in idolatry and this, this concept of sipping salt water. And the whole idea is, is that salt water in and of itself is actually not evil or bad. It actually can be very good. In fact, I'll read you a quote uh, that he says on that. But there's this idea that the moment you start to sip salt water, it actually makes you thirstier. And as you continually drink uh, or sip salt water, it's a slippery slope that ends in death, uh, both literally in the, in the sense of you're drinking ocean water, uh, but that's also true spiritually. And so what I'd like to do is I just want to read a couple quick quotes that I read last time uh, just to kind of bring us up to speed, and then I want to take a concept that he develops in the second half of his book and just kind of talk about this idea of God's garbage and gifts, because I think it's a great articulation of uh, us uh, wrestling through what does it mean for us to be dealing with idolatry. So that being said, uh, one quick caveat. Uh, as I mentioned last time, when it comes to any Christian books outside of Scripture, uh, we need to be reading with discernment. In other words, not just imbibing whatever we read just because there's the name Christian on the cover, uh, but just as a reminder, uh, just because I'm bringing up a book does not mean I fully support the book. Because <laughs> there's some things that he says, I'm like, ah, I don't think I'd say it that way. And I, I wouldn't give him the benefit of the doubt. I'm presuming, uh, you know, he's not just running rampant. But at the same point, just read with discernment and throw out all the bad stuff. Uh, so if you don't like something in the book, I'm not fully endorsing it. Is that, is that a good, okay caveat? <laughs> just trying to cover my bases. So <clears throat> this is what uh, Steve Hope says uh, in the book in terms of idolatry. He says, drinking salt water means turning a gift from God into a lowercase g God. Drinking salt water is what the Bible calls idolatry. In other words, anytime that we come and we just start to drink the salt water, at least as the imagery in the book, this is this, is this idea of idolatry. You're taking something that is actually not meant to be drunk and you're imbibing it. You're just swallowing it whole. You're gulping it down. So this is what he says in terms of uh, salt water. He says, it's easy to conclude that salt water is inherently evil. But is it? Well, no. And if you look at the literal salt water that surrounded Louis Zamperini, uh, he says, in many ways, the 187 quintillion gallon Pacific Ocean was a friend to him. It provided a relatively soft landing. It disinfected his scrapes, his sores, his blisters. It reduced the swollen in his badly bruised legs and cooled his sunburnt skin. It even housed the fish that he caught and ate. But for those of us who aren't stranded in the middle of the ocean, it can also be beneficial. So listen to this. Salt water can be used to soften our skin, store our contact lenses, and fill our pools. 
It can help cure athlete's foot, laryngitis, eczema, sore throats, and toothaches. At the very least, it can be a thing of beauty as shown by elevated real estate prices for ocean view properties. In the same way, the metaphorical salt, salt water that I'm describing isn't inherently evil. Money isn't evil. Sex isn't evil. Control, comfort, busyness, people, food, and works aren't evil. When used and enjoyed for its intended purpose, appreciated as God designed it to be appreciated, salt water is a very good thing. We just weren't meant to drink it. And so I really appreciated his, just his thought of God has given us wonderful gifts, and they can be enjoyed. The problem is, is the moment you drink it, you will die. So we can use the gifts. We just weren't meant to imbibe the gifts. They weren't meant to become our gods. And so, and this is again one more quote from last time. He says this, So why is the title of this book, Sipping Salt Water? Why not drinking salt water? Because our idolatry is usually subtle. We're not typically guzzling, pounding, inhaling, or slamming down salt water. We're often not even drinking it in the general sense of the word drink. We're usually sipping it. We're taking slow, subtle, quiet, gentle, and measured tastes. We're placing it to our lips and allowing small amounts to enter our mouths. We're savoring it and slowly swallowing. Sometimes we're sipping it subconsciously. We don't even realize we're doing it. But God sees our sips, our tiny little sips, every single one, and he takes every single sip very seriously. And so what I want to do is I want to take that concept that we were talking about last time, and I want to take it one step further in this idea of what he calls uh, God, garbage, or gift. Isn't it interesting that so oftentimes the enemy takes that which God has given to us for good and has twisted it and has turned it into some sort of a lower key, lowercase g God uh, in our lives. And so what a lot of us will tend to do is we'll either begin to drink, if I, if I can keep that metaphor, drink that salt water, which means it becomes our God, or we have so gone the other direction that we are so adamant against it, we've actually done the same thing. We've turned it into what he's calling garbage, but we are so standing against whatever that is that in so doing, it's like the resistance against the gift has become our idol. I want to flesh that out just a little bit. Uh, so let me just give you a couple quotes and then I'll talk through this. Uh, Steve Hope says this, There are three ways we commonly treat any form of salt water. We can swing the pendulum in one direction and idolize it, turn it into a god, lowercase g god. We can swing the pendulum to the opposite extreme and demonize it, turn it into garbage. Or we can use it as God intended and treat it as a gift from above. In all three instances, we're putting our hope in something. In the first, we're putting our hope in the salt water itself. In the second, we're putting our hope in avoiding the salt water. In the third, our hope is in the giver of the salt water, Jesus Christ. And I, this is probably a little complex at one level because I think any idolatry we need to stay away from. His point, though, I think is actually valid that the moment you, you look at something and say, okay, well, that is an idol, so I'm going to go to the other extreme. Well, going to the other extreme can often be, make it into an idol. Uh, in other words, uh, money in our culture is an idol. It is. You, you just look at how people are trading money, and money is such an idolatrous thing. Well, the moment we go to the other direction and be like, okay, I'm totally against money. Well, now you have a new idol. It's called poverty. And you actually see that in some of the, the Catholic traditions 
where, you know, the monastery thing where it's like, I'm going to have a vow of poverty. And it sounds really spiritual until you actually look at how they're living it out and you realize that has actually become an idol. And money is so now evil that the, the, uh, the avoidance of money has now become the idol. Realizing, or how about this, what if we would realize that money is actually not the issue? Money is just a tool, it's in one sense very neutral, that God can use. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Uh, sex, sexuality is not bad. God made it, it's good, he called it good, praise the Lord. And yet in our culture that has become twisted and that is, is an idol. And yet to go to the other extreme and say, okay, uh, it's horrible, it's evil, it's no good, you are called to be single for life. And you have the avoidance of, of all that to, to an extreme, that has become an idol. And now you have an idol of singleness. Rather than realizing, okay, if I'm single, I'm called to walk in purity and chastity. And yet if I'm married, I'm called to walk in purity and fidelity with, with your spouse. But the sex is not the issue. Is this making sense? So I think what, he's, what I appreciate about his articulation of God, garbage, and gift is realizing that a lot of things that we typically idolize, the moment you go to the other extreme, you've actually made an idol of the opposite. Does that make sense? <laughs> okay. So let me give you one of his illustrations. I think this is both humorous at one level and illuminating in the other. Uh, he says, as an illustration, let's look at the salt water of caffeine, which is not typically an idol I would categorize. In other words, if I'm listing idols, this isn't the first one that comes in my head, but this, this is a good one. He says, uh, as an illustration, he says, Candace is a coffee addict. She's harsh toward her family before her morning cup. She stops in a Starbucks three times a day and orders a venti Americano with five shots of espresso. Five shots! Her monthly coffee budget triples her car payment. She can't function without caffeine. It is her God. Stephanie avoids caffeine at all costs. She believes it makes her body tainted in God's eyes. While she admits this self-imposed prohibition may seem excessive to others, she believes there's a special blessing awaiting her in heaven if she abstains. So she self-righteously restricts herself and looks down on anyone who does otherwise. She turns caffeine into garbage. In doing so, she's worshiping the false god of, chemical free, of a chemical-free body. Mary's a Christian. During the week, she limits herself to two daily cups of coffee, one before work and one after lunch. On Saturday morning, she adds a bonus drink. She treats herself to a 7-Eleven Big Gulp, a mix of fountain cherry Coke and Diet Coke, 32 ounces of carbonated and caffeinated glory. <laughs> Just the way he describes that. As soon as the elongated red plastic straw hits her lips, she smiles cheek to cheek with a gleeful chuckle and a thank you, Jesus. Within an hour, the soda's gone, and her day continues. To Mary, caffeine's a gift from God. Nothing more, nothing less. Three women, three different responses to caffeine. Candace treats it as a god. Stephanie treats it as garbage. Mary treats it as a gift. Isn't that interesting? And it's a cheeky illustration in my mind. But I think, it's, I think it's a good illustration of how easy it is to turn something into a God or turn something into garbage or whether you can treat it as a gift. And again, you may not fully like that illustration, but it's just an illustration. So if I can go back to the last three, four episodes that we've been walking through this idea, I, I want to just remind ourselves what are idols. And 
I, I gave these quotes in previous episodes, but I, I want to reprise them because I think they're helpful in terms of an articulation of what are idols in our life. So here's what Brad Bigney says in the Gospel Treason book. He says, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, our minds, and our affections more than God. So what can be an idol in your life? Anything. Norm Wakefield says this, he says, whenever someone looks to anything or anyone other than God as a source of all things, he commits the sin of idolatry. So here's a good definition of idolatry, looking to any person, object, or idea to supply what only God can supply. And then John Juman says this, he says, idolatry is the opposite of love, for it is an attempt to get what we want from someone or something. Idolatry really, sorry, idolatry is really above the motive and the intent of the heart to look to someone or something else besides Jesus to meet my needs. Idolatry is looking to anyone or anything to meet my needs. So when you look at this idea of idolatry, then it really could be anything. And, and so what Steve Hope does, and in the book, in the second half, which I think is a great way of doing this, is he takes these eight areas, I think there's eight, uh, money, sex, control, comfort, busyness, people, food, and works, and he uses those as like these big umbrella categories to look at what does it mean to treat this as a lowercase g God, what does it mean to treat it as a garbage, or what does it mean to treat it as a gift? But you realize that's not an exhaustive list because you could look at other things like wisdom or health or success, time, your job, emotions, pleasure, or even religion. Those all can become idols in our lives. So again, we're not talking about an exhaustive list because if I can go back to the quote I just read by, bad, by Brad Bigney, an idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. So what can be an idol in your life? Anything. So again, we're not trying to create a list of idols, but what I, I would encourage us to do is to lay ourselves before the Lord saying, Lord, would you search my heart and my mind? What is it that I've put as an idol in my life? And even good things, even spiritual things can actually become idols. You know, sometimes I think for, for a lot of us, the idea of, uh, you know, like how uh, our spiritual disciplines uh, the amount of sleep or the lack of sleep, you know, the, our evangelism, our missions, our testimonies, our, our whatever can easily become idols in our life because we'll, we're actually placing our hope and our trust in those things rather than in Jesus. And so just as a, maybe as an encouragement for all of us, what would it look like if we set ourselves before the Lord and says, will you search and try my heart? And would you look at every area of my life even the good and the religious areas of our lives and say, Lord, is, is there actual idolatry even in those areas? Because it is so easy to take even re- re- religiosity and our perfect church attendance and our whatever and say, well, yeah, I'm totally fine. I'm a good Christian. Why? Well, well because I, I, I tithe. I, you know, I, I've never missed a Sunday. I teach Sunday school. You know, I read the Bible every single day or whatever it may be. And we've actually placed our hope and our trust in spiritual works rather than in Jesus Christ. And so the moment we turn to anything other than Jesus, that thing slowly becomes an idol in our life. Whether we have made it a God or whether we have turned it into garbage, the reality is Jesus must be the very center and the focus of our life. So let me just use one illustration that Scott uses in his book, Sipping Salt Water. And 
of course, you know, he looks at money and sexuality and, and works and, you know, comfort and all these kind of things. But I, I want to look at the illustration of busyness, partly because this is probably the one I struggle with the most. <laughs> this is so convicting to me. Uh, and so just for the sake of an illustration, again, I would encourage you to even read the book, Be Discerning. Uh, but the book is a, gives some great illustrations. It gives a whole bunch of practical stories if you like those. Uh, but let me just give you a few quotes from the book in terms of how he defines this idea of busyness as a lowercase g God, as garbage, or as actually a gift. And so th- this is what he says. The moment you take busyness and turn it into a God, it's this idea of salvation by doing. So Scott Hope says this. He says, in today's fast-paced, accomplishment-driven culture, there's always a reason to be busy. Homework needs to get done. Meals need to be cooked. Work deadlines need to be met. Hours need to be, or sorry, houses need to be cleaned. Books need to be written. The list is endless. There's always something to do. Water fountains spewing the salt water of busyness are everywhere. And it's interesting, and I've, I've talked about this before, I think to our students, but our culture has been on this slope, this very slippery slope of busyness in the last 20 years, where the idea of success is now linked closely with busyness. So the more busy you are, uh, the more you fill up your schedule, the more you're rushing about, the more successful uh, the, the world deems us to be. And I know that propensity. And it, it's really easy to spiritualize that in the church because, well, there's a lot of ministry that needs to get done. There's a lot of souls that need to be saved. There's a lot of Uh, of God's work that needs to get accomplished. And so what do I do? I I tend to put that weight upon my own shoulders and in my own pride and my own arrogance. Okay, I got to get this done. And so I'm rushing about trying to do it out of my own strength. And in so doing, I've actually allowed busyness to become my God. Now on the, oh, he goes on. Uh, He says, ungodly busyness at its core is always a heart issue. There's always a heart issue behind unhealthy busyness. What's yours? Perhaps you feel insecure and insignificant unless you're doing something productive. Perhaps you stay busy to distract yourself from emotional, relational, or spiritual pain in your life. Perhaps you're busy so that you can brag about how busy you are. Whatever the case may be, if you're sipping the salt water of busyness, don't check your task list, don't check your calendar, check your heart. Because it is a heart issue. Now, if you go to the other extreme then, and you say, okay, well, then I'm going to stand absolutely against busyness. I am never going to be busy again. Well, then you actually turn busyness into garbage, and that has become your idol. So he calls the garbage version of busyness salvation by resting. He says, not everyone is excessively busy. Many swing the pendulum in the opposite direction and run from being busy. They worship another god, the god of rest. So how do you know if you're sipping the God of rest? You're lazy. Maybe you're lazy at your job. You show up late, leave early, or take long lunches without telling anybody. Maybe you're lazy in your marriage. You stop showing affection towards your spouse because romance just takes too much effort. Maybe you're lazy with your body. You don't exercise because vegging out is far more comfortable than working out. Maybe you're lazy in your spiritual life. You don't read the Bible because it's much easier to pick up a remote than God's Word. If you're lazy with anything then you're sipping this salt water of rest. And strangely, I've done both. (laughs) It's like there are certain areas of my life where I've turned busyness into a God and I have praised the joys of being busy and I've delighted in telling people, I'm sorry, I'm really, really busy. 
And then there's other areas of my life where I have celebrated the God of laziness. And I'll be like, no, 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 I don't want to be busy in this area. Whether it's health or, you know, exercise or whatever else, right? So isn't it, isn't it interesting how you can fall on either one of those pendulum sides? And what's interesting is the moment I take something good and I put it to either extreme, it has become an idol. So whether I turn it into a lowercase g God and idolize that thing, or whether I stand vehemently against it, that too makes it an idol in my life in the opposite sense. So then what's, what's the middle of this? What is the gift of busyness? Which is a weird way of saying it. But what is the gift of busyness? So he says in the book, he says, how do we avoid both? How does godly busyness, sorry, what does godly business, busyness look like? And furthermore, what does godly rest look like? I'll start with godly busyness. In the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is debating with a group of religious leaders when one tries to stump him with a question. Of all the commandments, what is the most important? Mark 12, 28. Jesus' response is the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and with all of your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, Mark 12, 30 through 31. And so he goes on and explains, he says, the most important commandment is love. But what does this have to do with busyness? In the greatest commandment, Jesus is telling us what godly busyness is. It, mean, it means we're busy loving, loving God and loving others. But this love isn't about feelings. It has nothing to do with the butterflies in our stomachs, sappy sentiments, or erotic impulses. Jesus is describing a different kind of love. The word translated as love here is the Greek word agape or agape. Agape love is an act of the will independent of our emotions. It is a calculated design of benevolence toward the object of love, an intentional and unconditional demonstration of warmth, charity, honor, and respect. So how do we show God's agape love? Well, in at least three ways. First, we drink His living water. We read scripture, spend time with other Christians, pray, show generosity, offer Him praise, and tell others about Him. See chapter 5 of the Sipping Salt Water book. Second, we obey Him, John 14, 15. We submit to his rules, allow his word to guide us, and trust that his ways are best. And third, we love others. When we do so, we're indirectly loving him. Jesus makes it clear that whatever we do to our neighbors, we do to God. Matthew 25, 40. So how do we show agape love toward our neighbors? One word, sacrifice. We sacrifice our time, energy, and resources for their good. We practice patience, gentleness, and unmerited kindness even when our flesh tells us not to. We take our eyes off ourselves and focus them on those in need. We offer comfort, compassion, and care to those in pain. We, or we're gracious toward our enemies, even if they're evil back. We consider people better than ourselves and back it up with our lifestyles. We're selflessly sacrificial for the benefit of others. What's godly busyness? We're busy loving God and loving others. We're busy obeying the greatest commandment. That's godly busyness. So what's godly rest? So when do we rest? Short answer, frequently. It's good to rest. It's good to relax. It's good to kick up your feet after a long day to work, spend time with your family, watch a little PG-rated television, and decompress. Now, whether you agree with that statement or not, that you can discern that. That's what he says. 
Uh, it's good to take vacations when you're overworked, naps when you're overtired, amen, and an occasional spa days when you're overstressed. It's good to read a book when you need peace and quiet. It's good to play sports when you need an energy outlet. It's good to do things in moderation that allow your mind and body to rest. And it's really good to take one day a week, typically Sunday, and devote it to spiritual rest. Christians call this a Sabbath, a day to do no work, yes, none, a day to attend church, a day to spend extra time praying, serving, worshiping, reading the Bible, and intentionally engaging with Christians, a day devoted to God. But let me warn you, you won't find the deepest form of rest in anything I've listed above. You won't find it by camping out on the couch, taking a vacation, napping, soaking in a tub, reading, playing sports, or even spending a day off to, dedicated to God. You'll only find it in a person. Deep, life-giving, soul-permeating rest can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. You only find true rest in Jesus. You'll find it when you spit out your salt water and drink His living water. I don't know if that's helpful, but I really appreciate it that language of taking something and either turning it into a God, garbage, or a gift. And at least in the area of busyness, this is, I mean, I, you could probably go through all of his examples and all of us at some level had some participation in making it a God or, a, or garbage. But what if we actually took some of these areas that are actually a gift from the Lord and say, okay, money is actually not bad. Sex, sex is not bad. Uh, busyness actually is not bad. We need to work. And yet, that shouldn't be our life. That it is a tool in the, in the hands of Jesus. Rest should not be our life. And yet, that too needs to be part of our life. So it's interesting as you work through this list of things in our life, whether it's things that we have idolized and turned into a God or things that we have completely avoided and in so doing turn something else into a God, what if we would come back to center and make Jesus our God, and actually remove the idolatry from our life, enjoy the gifts that he has given us, but not take any of his gifts and turn it into a God or a garbage? So here's a question. What are, what are you sipping on? And, and maybe it's something from his list, like money, sex, control, comfort, busyness, people, food, works. But maybe it's a whole bunch of other stuff. Maybe, maybe it is your religion or your pleasure or your emotions, your job, your time, your success, your health, your wisdom, or you've idolized relationships or you're sipping on the salt water of whatever. Do you realize that any amount of idolatry in your life must be removed? That, that we cannot allow anything to distract us from the centrality of Jesus Christ. That He and He alone is to be preeminent in our lives. So, Here's an idle test, and I, I read this last time. I, I just really appreciated Steve Hope's list of questions, so I just wanted to reprise it just so it's afresh in front of all of us. But he says in the book, Sipping Salt Water, he says, how do you know if something is a God in your life? Ask yourself a series of test questions. I, I love these questions. Listen to these. What do you adore way too much? What do you obsess about? What do you fantasize about? What are you terrified of losing? What do you need with a capital N? What do you spend way too much time doing? What is your go-to escape in the midst of suffering? Or if I may even add, what is your go-to escape in the midst of stress? In times of silence, where does your mind naturally gravitate? What gives you meaning and purpose? What gives your life security? Where do you put your trust when life is scary? What do you dwell upon? How do you find inner peace? 
What do you spend way too much money on? What defines you? What do you worship? That is your God. And I love that list of questions because what it actually reveals is that I think for every single one of us, we've allowed something in that has given us comfort or pleasure or joy or satisfaction other than Jesus. And what would it look like if we would turn from all these distractions, we would quit sipping on the salt water, to use that metaphor, and actually start drinking from the fountain of living waters, Jesus himself. That is our only hope. So here, here's been my working definition of idolatry. It's looking to anyone or anything besides Jesus to meet my needs. What is it in your life that you are turning to other than Jesus to meet your needs? And here's really the question. So what, what do we do then if we find ourselves sipping salt water? What do we do if we find ourselves turning God's gifts into a God or turning it into garbage? What are we to do? Let me just give you three really quick ideas. One, spit out the salt water. Quit drinking it. I'm, that's easier said than done. I do get that. <clears throat> but let's not keep drinking it. Let's repent of our salt water sipping. Let's not only spit it out, but then turn our backs, up, uh, backs upon it and say, God, I repent. I, I apologize for turning this, whatever this is, into a God of my life. Or Lord, I'm so sorry for going to the other extreme and making it garbage and in fact turning something else into a God. And then what if we would have an exclusive or total devotion unto the Lord? What if, as we've been walking through in this series, what if we would actually make God preeminent and central in our lives? Uh, several sessions ago, we were walking through the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and, and looking at this command that Moses gives Israel. And I mentioned that the Shema was the thing that was quoted every single morning when, it, when you would rise up. It was the thing you quote every night before you went to bed. This is the thing that you would say every, every time you'd walk into the synagogue as a good Jew. Jesus, when he was asked the question, hey, what is the greatest commandment in the Old Testament? He turns to this. And if you want to rehash all this, we, we had a whole bunch of episodes walking through this. But let me just give you my amplified version of this passage. And this is taking all the studies that we did and kind of packing it into uh, this passage. But Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5, uh, my amplified version. It says this, Shema, O Israel. Listen or hear, O Israel. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh alone. And you shall love Yahweh your God with a covenantal, voluntary, passionate love where you worship and become more like the one you love most. And you're to love Him with all of your heart, meaning your inner person, your mind, will, emotions, desires, and intentions, with all of your soul, meaning with the whole of your life, all that you are, both physically and uh, internally, and with all of your might, meaning everything you have, your talent, your ability, your possessions, your money, your time, everything. What if we would love God with everything and have an exclusive devotion to Him? Can I encourage you to set yourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, will you search and try my heart? Uh, would you come in and examine and, and see if there is any wicked way within me? See if there's any idolatry in my life? Is there any areas that I may be even justifying? Because, well, it's just, it's just one sip of salt water. It's not that big of a deal. The problem is, is a single sip of salt water makes us more thirsty. And as we're more thirsty, we keep sipping and we keep sipping and we keep sipping and we start gulping and then it's going to destroy and kill us. 
And so if, if we find ourselves even beginning the sip of the salt water drink, could we repent, spit it out, repent, come before the Lord and say, Lord, change my life, and then turn our whole life upon Jesus and have an exclusive and total devotion of seeking after him and loving him with everything, with all that I am and all that I have, pursuing him. That is the life of a Christian. Can we repent of our salt water? Can we repent of our idolatry, whatever that may be in your life? And I had thought maybe taking some episodes and, and walking through a whole bunch of you know, things that are typically idolatrous in our culture, but I don't know how helpful that would be. It just sounds miserable <laughs> to be told. And so I scratched it. This, this was my replacement uh, for doing that for a whole bunch of episodes. I don't want to I do want to keep talking about idolatry, but I don't want to do so by just looking at, okay, let's, let's talk about money, all right, let's talk about sex, let's talk about comfort, because ultimately, you know what your idols are. If you don't, just ask Jesus. He will, he's very faithful to reveal them. Instead of doing that, I want us to ponder Jesus, and I just want us to keep coming back to this idea of we need to repent. We need to turn our gaze upon the Lord and let him radically change our lives what if we would make him the center of all things is jesus truly preeminent in your lives is he first place is he the delight of your life if not it means something is salt water in your in your soul let's pray uh, lord i think all of us have some salt water in our mouth and for some of us, we've been guzzling. For some of us, we may just be sipping. But Lord, would you, through your Spirit, put your finger on anything and everything in our life that has been re replacing you? Lord, don't let us justify, well, it's, 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 it's actually, it's not even that bad. It's just, Lord, don't let us justify that. Well, it's just only one time. It's, Lord, don't let us justify the well, it's, it's good spiritual stuff. But Lord, if it's replacing you, if we are turning to it for our satisfaction or our joy or our comfort, our hope, then Lord, we have an idol in our lives. And Lord, for some of us, we've, we have turned it into a lowercase g God. And we've built our lives around whatever it is. And we are consumed and we're controlled and it's become a habit and an addiction and it just we, we, it's like we're lost in the midst of our God. For some of us, we, have, we so want to avoid whatever that is and so we've gone to the other extreme and we're so adamant against whatever that may be that we've turned the opposite into a God. And we too are living with idolatry. Lord, could we freshly come before you and find ourselves at the foot of the cross? And Lord, would you take every sip and every ounce of, of idolatry in our lives and would you, would you bring it to death? Would you allow us, enable us to, to walk in obedience to you and your word? And may we find our delight, our hope, our joy, our comfort, our pleasure in you and you alone. And it's not that relationships are bad. We get that. It's not that money is evil. We get that. Lord, you have given us these wonderful gifts of, 
of romance, of relationships, of, of time. But Lord, don't let us replace You in our lives with those things. Lord, would You and You alone be God. And may we love You and pursue You and seek after You and delight in You with everything we are and all that we have. May You be God in our lives. And so Lord, let us just delight ourselves and celebrate You today. And would You just be at the forefront of our living. And and Lord, we understand this is not a one-time surrender. This is a moment-by-moment, day-by-day surrender of setting our affections on You and turning from our idolatrous pursuits to keep You and You alone on the throne. So Lord, give us grace. And may the Gospel and the power of Your Word become evident in our lives. Transform us in such a way that our lives become a picture in this generation, in this dark world of ours, of what it looks like to actually walk free and live a Christian life. Lord, thank You for such an opportunity. We do love You. We just give You all the praise and the glory in Your precious name. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.